and welcome to the Ordinary Church Podcast, a discussion of God's extraordinary works through His ordinary ways. My name is Winston Weber, and today, Pastor Mike is with me, and we're talking about finding the main point of a passage. How's it going, Mike? Going well, and I can't wait to get into this topic. I love the Word of God, and I love preaching the Word of God, and I love studying to find the main point of a passage. Amen. And I I think that's kind of why I wanted to do this. We've done a lot of different ancillary topics, but now we get to do what I know you're passionate about it. I'm really passionate about just digging into the Bible to find out what exactly it means and how we can understand it better so that in our daily readings, as well as when we go to church, we understand a little bit more of what's going on in a context and why these words really matter. Absolutely. Let's anchor ourselves in 2 Timothy 2.15. Let's start there. Yeah. Uh, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And we want to to be rigorous and careful with the word of God always. Uh, We don't take it haphazardly. This is not what does this mean to me. This is what did God mean when he said this. That's right. And the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. That's how it needs to be. And this idea of of doing your best to present yourself to God as one approved, who has no need to be ashamed, but rightly handling the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth, that's literally cutting a straight furrow, plowing a straight line in a field, cutting a road straight. And the idea is handling something in an accurate way so so that you actually present the faithfulness that is that is embedded in the text. So what is God saying? You know, we need to just see what does the word say? And then what does it mean? And then how does it apply to our life, right? Read it, explain it, apply it. And for more info on that, we've done an episode on expository listening. We really think that that's important, that when you go to listen to a sermon or even when you go to your text, you're reading the word, you're explaining the word, and then you're applying the word. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning, you're going to listen to the word, you're going to understand the word, and then you're going to go and obey the word. Mm -hmm. Those are the those key principles that keep us rooted to the word. And Mike, I got to kind of tap you on something because you said something really interesting when talking about finding the main point of the subject. Mm -hmm. You said, we need to understand that God meant what he said when he said it. Can you expound a little bit on that? Okay. A lot of times people will say, well, this is what this text means to me. And you've got like 10 different meanings from 10 different people. That's false. Okay. God, when he said everything he said, he meant one thing. He didn't mean 15 things. And, you know, Protestant biblical interpretation is, you know, one interpretation. There can be many applications downstream as you apply it to life and to certain situations, but there's one interpretation. And some people will say, well, that sounds, you know, like you're puffed up, that you you know it all. That sounds, you know, almost prideful that you can actually understand. And like, no, God illumines the scriptures for us as we're rigorous and careful with the passage and and we can know we believe in a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic which means we take the words literally and what do they mean in context and and what is the grammar what do the words mean and for example a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is going to lead you to certain things for example uh, male-only elders, okay? We've, a lot of people are talking about that nowadays. So when you actually apply the kind of hermeneutic that Bible writers applied and that Jesus applied and that the apostles applied, you will come to, every time, 
that elders are only to be men. So people that are twisting the scriptures to say that elders can be women, they have to go away from a literal, a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic and literally go into allegorizing the text or cultural pragmatic analogies and what have you and be sentimental about it and play on cultural um, ideas and emotions rather than, again, going back to the text, back to what God said. And then when did he say it? Who did he say it to? What, what, what did he mean in that context? And then what does this mean for every church in every age and every Christian in every age? And that's right. And we want to shape that a little bit. We want to develop uh, the listener's hermeneutic here. We want to help you guys understand exactly how to interpret the scriptures. That's what hermeneutics means, is we are interpreting the rules of interpretation. That's hermeneutics. And so part of that has the understanding that the author— had something in mind, wanted to communicate something in mind, and used grammar and words, syntax and everything to formulate his thoughts on paper. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. And I don't know about you, Mike, but it seems like we do this in every realm of life. And yet, when it comes to the Bible, all of our hermeneutical knowledge just goes out the window because we can make it say whatever we want it to say. Would you take that if somebody twisted your words over and over and over again to say nothing of what you actually meant them to mean? Well, it happens, doesn't it, right? People do that. People actually twist people's words, and you have to clarify and say, well, you know, I didn't say that. And here, here's a transcript of what I said. There have been times, actually, that someone will have said to me, well, you said this in your sermon, and I don't agree with it. And I'll pause, and I'll say, you know, I might have said that, and I wouldn't agree with that either. <laughs> Sometimes you say something inadvertently that you don't mean to say. But other times I've paused and said, well, let's look at my notes. I actually have almost a full manuscript of notes I can print off for you. I don't think I said that, but let's check. And I'll go back and lo and behold, I didn't say that. And they're like, oh, I thought I heard that. Because, you know, again, we're listening. I, I'm the same way. I think I hear someone say something. That's why it's always good to go back and clarify. Now think about what we need to do when we come to a biblical text. We need to explain the text, right? The truth rises out of that. So it's going to be directly stated or implied right there in front of you. You discover it. You discover what the word is saying. And then also you look at the grammar. You look at the words. You look at the syntax. You look at the way the, the sentences are phrased. You look at the context. And then you come up with a proposition like this is emerging from the text, right? So what, you, what do you do? You read the passage over and over and over again until you understand the main proposition. And it's usually connected to the main verb. Um, not nouns or participles, usually connected to the main verb. And, and the sermon gets built around that, okay? And so let's say you're reading the Bible, listeners, and you're reading the Bible just for your own edification. You, your, your life application will arise from that. So what you want to do is, as you're reading the Word and you understand the, what it's saying, what you do is your application builds around that and expands around that, and you, you explore that same truth in other places of Scripture. So then you search the Scriptures and kind of fill it out. And, you know, it talks about preaching the, from what accords to sound doctrine, right? We want to preach and live and believe and practice what accords to sound doctrine, sound teaching. Now, we believe... 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, right? It is inspired by God. It is from God, and it is profitable. So all scripture is profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and get this, the, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I love that word equipped. It's literally like 
fully loaded like a car. You get a new car and it's got all the bells and whistles. It's We say it's fully loaded, right? So it's got the sunroof. It's got leather seats. Seat warmers. It's got seat warmers. Or nowadays. Seat coolers. Seat coolers. Ooh. Seat. I don't have that. But I'm telling you what, I've sat in a car with seat it's air conditioners, bizarre, basically. It? It's, it's bizarre. You're like, wow, where's that coming from? Anyway, back but anyway, on track. <laughs> uh, fully equipped. Yeah, fully equipped. Like a sailing vessel that has everything on it. Back in those days, that's what it would refer to. But, you know, basically, you're going to be ready to do whatever you're called to do. And so Paul was telling Timothy, Timothy, you'll be ready to do whatever God calls you to do as you're being a doer of the word. No joke. You didn't know exactly what the topic was going to be. You kind of had an idea, but you stole my verse, man. <laughs> I have that up on my computer right now. Listeners, man. listeners, this is uh. one of those weeks again where I, I walk into the studio here and say, Winston, what are we talking about today? Yep. And he's like, do you want to know now or in a minute? And then we talk for a little while. Yeah. I'm like, now tell me what we're talking about. Yeah. And when he tells me, you know what my answer was? My response was, yes, I can't wait. So this verse, more than anything else, I've actually told people, I've told, I used to teach kids a lot. And so I told them if they memorized 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, then I will give them a a gold coin, a dollar gold coin. Oh, I thought you gave them like a Snickers bar or something like that. No, no, I give them the good stuff. Wait, a gold Um, coin? Can I do this? Can I get in on this? You're not a kid. I'm can sorry. we go You're retroactive? Because I've known this verse for a long time, but can I get the gold mm. coin anyway? No, no, no. Hold on. <laughs> I, I have to say something. Okay. I think this verse is more important to most of the Bible and understanding our reliance on the Bible that I've made that order for those kids that, hey, I'm so proud. If you can commit this to memory, this will be the best dollar that I've ever spent. I love that. I and love that. so this verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is the very word of God, and it is profitable. We can gain something from mm-hmm. it. And then mm-hmm. through it all, each of those words being defined, it helps us so that we can go and do every good work. I've, I've said this multiple times on this podcast, but mm-hmm. this verse more than just about any other, I think is so core to understanding what the Bible means Mm -hmm. that we have to pay attention to it. Oh, yeah. And think about Psalm 19, where it talks about the law of the Lord is perfect, Mm. converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is is sure, uh, making wise the simple. And it's over and over again, basically talking about the word of God and its effects upon your soul, right? And Psalm 119, what did the psalmist say? Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 138 verse 2 is another verse I want to point out to our listeners and really point out to you, Winston, because I think you'll love this. Psalm 138 verse 2, David says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's right. I love this. He, he has basically exalted his name and he exalted his word. And, and I would just say this, listeners, you will never do anything more sobering and more serious than handle the word of God. That's right. Uh, don't avoid the immense burden. Don't, don't run away from it because it's so big. You think about it. God's standards are our standards, right? What the word says is what we are to live on. So the grass withers. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. We now know the foundation is understanding this is the very word of God. Mm -hmm. Secondly, is that we can understand it because Mm -hmm. it was the very revelation of God to us that he's not going to make it ununderstandable. We know that we can understand the word. We know that it's the very word of God. Now we're going to do some case studies of how exactly we can find the main point of a passage. Okay. So let's start off easy. John 3, 16. 
every person knows this verse, right? Every person, even a lot of unbelievers, can understand this verse. So, Mike, let's just break this down, follow a few rules as to how exactly we find what this passage means, and then we're going to break this out and we're going to do some harder ones. Fair? Fair enough. All right. Let's go. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that mean? Well, it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, that's what it says. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means what it says. Now, I'm I'm going to do a little sidebar because, of course, I didn't know we were going on this topic. And I've got something on my mind that's going to help us (laughs) as we go forward, really, in these examples. Think about this. You want to have a clear-headed understanding of what Scripture says, okay? Mm -hmm. So first you have to actually know what it says. So we're not going to change those words, right? We're not going to change it. But then you have to go into context, and you have to go into into the words and what they mean and what have you, and then Scripture interpreting Scripture and all that. But think about how some people take the Word of God, right? Some people are going to go, well, you know, I'm going to be really mystical about it. They have a weak view of Scripture, and they're just going to somehow connect it to the Bible, but really they're just going to jump off and get on their hobby horse, right? So that preacher or that, that reader of the Bible is their own hero in all their stories, okay? But they, they mix in bad theology, bad theology and yeah. Pelagianism and things like that. And so all I can say is some people can sound very persuasive, but they use the scriptures wrongly. They might use it as an analogy. Or they'll say, and I know we're going to get to, we're going to, get to David and Goliath today because I've got some, <laughs> some good ones on David and Goliath. Um, but a lot of, I just want to say, a lot of people read the Bible wrongly and, and teach and preach it wrongly. And, you know, we could name names, but you got the social justice stuff. You got veiled feminism. You've got whatever people want in the culture. Uh, you got when, when the church becomes like a theater or a show. So we're talking about propositional truth. We're talking about theological depth. And again, always looking for what propositional truth comes out of this text that becomes the structure of our convictions, right? So what does the text say? And then go and say what the text says, because that's what God intended to say. And, and you can objectively state this. So go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So what do we know? I mean, you can just break it down. So God, okay, we're talking about God, says that he loved the world. Now you got to look at world and go, okay, cosmos. Is that everyone in the whole world? Is that only believers? You know, and, and we're going to go with that, that he gave his only son. So he has only one son. Uh, we know God the son, Jesus. John, John chapter 1, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then whoever believes in him, whoever believes in who? Winston, who, who's that? Who's he? Who's him? Whoever uh, believes in him. John the Baptist, I think. No, it would be whoever believes in Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And then okay. who should not perish. So there's an opportunity that you might perish. There, there's a possibility you might perish. But then there's a possibility to have eternal life. But then you got to go back and go, wait a minute. How did this all happen? How did he come to say this? Well, there was a man named Nicodemus. Go back to verse 1. A man named Nicodemus of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus at night. Okay, he was afraid of probably his compatriots and his co-belligerents, and he was like, okay, I've got to like find out from Jesus. He's, and, and he asked questions of Jesus, and they had this give and take, this, this discussion. And then, you know, he tells him he has to be born again. And, and then he's like, well, how can that be? And, and then Jesus is like, how do you not understand? And, and then he keeps talking about believe, believe, believe. Look at verse 12. You do not believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, if you don't believe the earthly things? And then as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Now he's going back to the Old Testament. This is verse 14, two verses before verse 16. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Who's saying these words? Jesus. Jesus is saying these words. So Jesus is now talking about Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's me, Jesus speaking. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Now, if you stop there, you're like, oh, the whole world's going to be saved because God loves the whole world and the whole world will be saved. Look, that right there. No. Look at the next verse, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, okay, now we have a, a delineation, a differentiation. If you don't believe, you're condemned already because you haven't believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, just like Acts 16, 31 says. And then you got he goes into judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So people loved darkness, but they didn't love Jesus. Now you go back to, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. This is how God loved the world. You could even read it that way. This is the this is the way God loved the world. First uh, John kind of touches on that a little bit as well. He gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Remember that Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even those in hell are going to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. But this is talking about the son of God that should be the object of our belief for us to have eternal life. That's right. And I want the listeners to note something real quick. I did not prompt Pastor Mike on any of this. I did not say, hey, Mike, here's exactly the passage that you're going to go. I didn't know where we were going. You, you didn't know. So I want to just show this is something that you can do on your own when a verse comes up. This mm-hmm. is not something that you need to have some sort of seminary mind in order to understand how to do this. This is basic grammar and reading. That's right. And, and here's another thing I want to mention, listeners. This is not light and fluffy like, oh, John 3.16, I've seen it at the football games. By the way, you know, it used to be in all, the, all those football games. That's right. That's how I knew John 3.16. Before I became a believer, I didn't know the whole verse, but I had seen it in the end zone watching football games and wondered. And I could say the first part of it, for God so loved the world. That's as far as I could get. Yep. I did not know that verse. Everyone doesn't know that verse. But it's not light and fluffy. This is weighty. You know, this is very significant. Our life depends on understanding what the Word says. That is an important thing to understand is the reason why I wanted to bring this one up specifically Mm -hmm. is because we have all these preconceived notions of going into a passage, and we can become numb to these different passages. Right. But here's the thing. If anybody thinks that John 3.16 is boring— They did not just listen to what Pastor Mike had to say. This is a fascinating, fascinating verse. Mm -hmm. So really appreciate that. That that was the first one that I wanted to uh, discuss. I think that one's a really good one. So we just did a teaching passage from Jesus, and now we're going to shift a little to it's still a teaching passage from Jesus. He's using a different vehicle to get his point across. And in this point, he's using parable. Mm -hmm. Do we interpret parables differently than we interpret, say, John 3.16? Of course, we're going to look at it differently. We're going to look at the genre. And a parable is not something that you pick up and pick apart and make everything mean something. It's got one main point, okay? And if you remember anything about parables, remember this. The parable has one main point. So if there's like a pig inside the parable, that doesn't mean like, hey, God wants you to make bacon. You know, now I talked about bacon. Now your mouth is watering. You don't want to take everything in a parable and make it mean something. Now, in the early centuries... 
of the church, there was a lot of allegorizing of scripture. So if you go back and read Gregory the Great and other people that, that preached back then, what you'll notice is that they allegorized everything. And so they had like an allegorized meaning and then like this other meaning. And they would get really fanciful in terms of their interpretations of things. And so you don't want to go allegorize because when you do that, you get on really shaky ground. And sometimes it sounds, you know, persuasive, but it's just, you know, again, when we get to David and Goliath, you'll see this too, but people do it with parables as well. Absolutely. And in particular, I wanted to pull out one that, again, is familiar, but so that we can kind of break down what these rules are and mm-hmm. understand what exactly is going on. So mm-hmm. in terms of the prodigal son, we know the story. The son wants his inheritance, so he asks his dad for his inheritance. He goes away, he squanders it, he wallows with the pigs, and then he comes back. That's right. So one thing, real quick, when dealing with parables, my old teacher used to say that when you are reading a parable and you're trying to get the main point— Jump in, grab the point, and then run. Don't wallow in the point, otherwise you're going to get too heady for your own good. Right. And once again, listeners, we are trying not to input our own meaning into the text, but instead recognize that Jesus is telling this story for a very specific purpose. He is using meaning in his words. He is using a lot of meaning. And if you look at, go down to Luke 15, 32, where he says, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, go to the beginning of Luke 15, because you're going to see the parable of the lost sheep. And then you're going to see, in verse 8, the parable of the lost coin. And these all go together, okay? And it's, it's talking about repentance. So if you're going to say, what's the main idea in these in these parables of, of lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son, what's the main idea? You could say, well, lost and found. Well, that's kind of the big overarching umbrella idea, but really the kernel and nugget, the truth there is about repentance. That's right. So you look at the parable of the lost sheep in, in chapter 15, verses one through seven, and the sheep was lost, but it's been found. And then we have that well-known you know, statement, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then you go to the lost coin, and it's, I found the coin that I lost. Verse 10, so I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Now you go to the prodigal son. It's embedded in verses 17 to 21. It says he came to himself, okay? He's wallowing in the muck and the mud with the pigs. And it says, he came to himself and said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And it says in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And right there in those verses, you have this beautiful, beautiful picture of repentance. And the idea here is that God grants repentance. God finds the one who is lost. God draws the one who is lost. God brings the one who is lost to their senses. And so the whole lost and found thing is the big motif, but it's really about repentance. Yeah. 
So as you can see, we understand exactly what this passage means because we looked at the context, we read it, and then we understood what it meant because it's obvious once you read it in context. You let the word speak for itself. And we remove a lot of those modern-day cultural things that we want to input into the text. Mm-hmm. And our primary concern, let's get back to this, primary concern is biblical expositional preaching, okay? Um, and exegesis, where you take the words and the, the syntax and the sentence structures and the paragraphs, and then in context, but what do they mean? What do they say? The, but the idea of when you do this, this is called Bible exposition, okay? This is the kind of preaching you should be listening to, but this is the kind of reading and right. studying you should be doing. And it's unavoidably theological, it's always looking for what propositional truth comes out of this that becomes the part of the structure of my convictions. What does the text say? What did God intend to say? And we want to state that objectively. So now, Where and we go going? to our favorite passage. Where are we going? David and Goliath. Our last case study, and for uh, listeners, if you want to open your Bible to 1 Samuel 17, we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath. This, I think, has been ripped asunder as far as what the actual meaning of the text is. And I think, I think I know why. I think there are a lot of preachers out there who really want to make a tired old Bible story sound really exciting. But the problem is they misunderstand that this is not a tired old Bible story. That is true. And I think they also just make everything an analogy. Yeah. So it sounds persuasive, but you're using scripture as an analogy. A lot of people will say David and Goliath, it's about, you know, the spirit and the flesh, or it's about these five stones, the five virtues, you know, love, peace, joy, and uh, hope and, and grace or whatever. Even Spurgeon said, oh, the five stones are the five points of Calvinism. So right. no, yeah, that's not, that's there's not guilty parties all over the place. Yeah, so you want to find the true meaning of this passage. And I think listeners, Winston and I are here to, to let you know today, the true meaning of this passage is not hidden. No. It is actually right out in front of us, right under our noses. David it's, literally screams it Yes, at he Goliath. screams it out. <laughs> and so the main point, and we, t- we go back to what we said, what does the word say? What does it mean? When we come to this passage, maybe you, you haven't heard of this type of preaching, but I've heard some bad preaching in my past. Oh, well, we can face up to the giants that are in our lives, and we can fight with the Lord. We're empowered by God to go and strike down our giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Well, here's the thing, and I know there—I can't remember who said this, but they said we don't, we don't you know, fight for our victory. We fight from a position of victory in Christ. And sure, we have problems, and, and God will overcome, but to use a Bible passage that sounds persuasive, right— And, you know, is it the worst thing in the world to say, wow, you can overcome giants or you can move mountains, you know, things like that. It's not the worst thing in the world, but not if you base your whole life or if you say this is the meaning of the text. Right. So sometimes you use examples and illustrations and there's freedom. There's freedom and there's different views of what this passage means. But seriously, we're going to show you here's what it means because here's exactly what it says. That's right. So the second option that I've heard a lot of people say when, you know, oh, you can face your giants is no, 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 no. You don't face your giants. You are not David. Right. You are the scared Israelite (laughs) standing on the hill behind (laughs) David who was too afraid to go face Goliath. Right. And that's not true either, except that if you had to pick someone, that's who we would be. That's a pretty good analogy, right? That's who we would be if you had to pick somebody. That's right. But here's the thing. The true meaning in this passage 
is behind the meaning of the word found in your English translation at the end of verse 45. Okay. So look at verse 45. So David says to the Philistine, to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name, now this is key, in the name of the Lord of hosts. So there's a big idea right there. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, and here's the key, whom you have defied. Mm -hmm. So the key to understanding the meaning of this passage is the Hebrew word to defy or, or to mock. And the, really the whole big idea here, he goes on to say, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. But he and, goes out with that verse 45. The whole reason why David is even going to fight Goliath is found in verse 45. Absolutely. And the judgment of God is coming. He's basically telling him, you have defied and mocked God. So this story is about God bringing judgment on the one who blasphemes his name. So I come to you in the name of God Almighty. God is not going to be mocked. God is disciplining those who defy him. God's glory and honor are at stake. God is the main person here, okay? So this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. Did you hear it? We got, we got the so that statement. <clears throat> we got the therefore thesis statement of this passage. That's right. That's right. And the, the whole idea is that this is about God's name. This is about God's fame. This is about his honor. And he will not be mocked. And they will know that God is Almighty God. That's right. So really, when we look at this passage, we can understand that there are two subpoints to God will not be defiled. There are two reasons why David is going to take his action. So that the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. So they would know that Israel is has Yahweh on their side, right? And that God is God Almighty. That's right. So that's the first one. Over all the earth, we know Yahweh. Secondly, that the assembly, that's Israel, those who are standing with their knees knocking on the hill behind David, would know that God does not save with sword and spear. And that becomes so obvious when we see how Goliath is described as a fighter from his youth, that he has these huge swords and spears and shields and all this stuff. And even Saul tries to fit David with his own armor. Yes, and let's pinpoint this even tighter, okay? Let's really focus in on this. This is all about, the whole meaning is about God's name and God's honor and fame, right? And then basically those two strands, okay, the pagans will know this and believers will know this. That's right. And so, and really it, it should bring you to repentance or if you keep defying God, you're under his judgment. So I'm glad we were able to slay these giants today, Mike. This was great. <laughs> I really appreciate this because I think this is super practical. So if I'm hoping that my Bible reading becomes all that more fruitful because of it. And for you, listener, we hope that's true as well. Yes, we hope that when you open up the Word of God, you know that when Scripture speaks, God is speaking, and that you have deep fellowship with the Lord as you read the Word of God, as you study it, and as you take it into your heart and soul and your mind, and that you, you seek to live it out in the power of the Spirit. Amen. So we hope this episode was valuable to you and that you're able to use it in your own life, and that if you guys find that it is helpful, or if you want some more tips, or if you're able to send more questions that we can turn into an episode, anything like that, go Go ahead and email us at ordinarychurch 
at gmail.com. We love getting your questions. We're going to do a whole episode just on questions, and I'm just going to rapid fire them at Mike and see how he responds. So, Can't wait. <laughs> so send those in, and we hope that you'll join us next Thursday as we remain faithful, even in the ordinary.